This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. You have your Bibles with you. You'll want to turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity once again to gather to worship you. Thank you that you are a good and gracious God. Thank you that you love us so dearly, enough that you have given us your word to reveal yourself to us, to reveal your will to us, and that you work through it consistently and faithfully to shape us and grow us and make us into the people that you've called us to be. God, as we have already recognized, we are sinful people. We are needy people. We are day by day, moment by moment, in constant need of you. You are God. You are the only necessary being, and we are all contingent. We all rely on you for our very existence. We rely on you for the breath that we breathe, for the Uh, for the food that we need to survive. We rely on you for everything, yet so often we forget that, and we act as if we're self-sufficient. We act as if uh, the world revolves around us. God, I pray that you'd forgive us even of that, and that you would this morning direct our eyes to you, that you would remind us of the truth, that you are God, that you are holy, as we sang earlier this morning, that you are worthy of all praise, and that you are the one who provides. You are the one who gives so graciously. And Lord, help us as we recognize just how great you are to be able to boldly bring those needs that we have because our needs, our cares, our worries, our fears, our illnesses, our sins, all those things that are real, and they are things that we need to bring to your feet, knowing that you're the only one who truly offers 
solutions to those problems. You are the one who offers healing. You're the one who offers forgiveness and provides for our every need. So Lord, I pray for those in this congregation, in this church who are hurting, whether it's from illness, whether it's from uh, struggles and relationships, whether it's from family problems or uh, sins that we're struggling to put to death. Lord, I pray that you would provide what's needed. I pray that you would provide comfort, that you would provide peace. And we know that each one of these issues, each one of these problems is solved in the work of Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would draw us near, that you would remind us of the truth this morning, and that as Pastor Aaron preaches, that you would apply the words of the scripture to our hearts and that you would shape us, that you would change us, that you would encourage us, and that you would help us to be the people that you have called us to be. God, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning, First Press. I'm thrilled to be with you this morning, and if you would be so kind as to have uh, Luke 12 open in your Bible uh, app or on the physical Bible copy that you have, if you'd have it open and with you. Um, there are 12 verses here that are packed with information. There are 12 verses here that deal with uh, big aspects of what Christianity is about. And uh, many times as I was working on this this week, I thought, man, this could be about 12 different sermons. And I promise I won't hold you for more than three hours. No, um, but, I, but I do want to make sure that we give justice to the Lord's text here. And so as we look at this text, one of the things that is a repeated theme in verses 1 through 12 is the word fear. Fear. It's interesting, as you think about fear, fear is uh, something that captures us. Fear is powerful, isn't it? I'm a game show guy. I, I watch old game shows again and again and again and again. And I, I just get captivated by uh, quizzes and, and anything that challenges somebody. I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that. I don't know if that's my love for athletics or what, but I'm just, I'm just drawn to the idea that people are challenged. In 2001, a, a game show came out called Fear Factor. Anybody heard of that? There you go, at least a few hands. As you think about Fear Factor, I want you to understand that it first aired on NBC in 2001, and its goal was to bring contestants face-to-face -face with what they feared most. At times, however, it was really more disgusting than fearful. Um, but make no mistake, as I sat there and watched episode after episode, I was drawn in, and at times I'd find myself saying, no way, not me. No how is that going to happen to me. I, if I was a contestant and I would have refused like that, I would have been ultimately eliminated. And by doing that, I would have lost a chance at $50,000. I want you to think about that for a moment. The idea that they're, they're, they're put, putting together a love for money, which we all have, and, and fear. <laughs> and they're saying, which are you going to choose? Your fear or the money? And that was the, the spirit of this game show. This game show challenged people to be covered in live spiders. Uh, it challenged them to jump from great heights. And even there were episodes which were totally disgusting of eating live insects. And as the series played out, you would see time and time again people tapping out because fear is a powerful thing. Fear is a powerful thing. 
thing. And Jesus in our text is speaking about fear. What's ironic is the timing of Jesus' message about fear. Look at verse 1. In the meantime, so when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. What the text tells us here is Luke is saying this is the peak of Jesus' popularity. When he uses the phrase, many thousands of people, I want to give you a, a slightly adjusted understanding of what that text actually means. It means tens of thousands, 20,000, 30,000, perhaps 40 or 50,000 people were gathered there, pressing in to get close to Jesus. And as they're pressing in, what are they doing? They're actually stepping on one another. And it's here in the height of his popularity that Jesus speaks not to the crowd, not to the religious hierarchy, but to his disciples. Jesus speaks, and what does he speak about? He speaks about fear. You could almost hear the disciples say, fear? What are you thinking, Jesus? Look around. Everybody likes us right now. Rome better look out. Fear, we have nothing to fear. If you say, take that mountain, these people will go, Jesus. But Jesus knows our hearts, doesn't he? And Jesus begins to focus his message to his disciples on the problem of fear. What I would like to call wrong fear. Misguided fear. And Jesus begins to address where fear really should be focused. Go back to 12.1, at the very end of 12.1, he says to the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He, he's telling his disciples to beware of hypocrisy. He's telling his disciples to beware that they too could be like the Pharisees. He just got done going after the Pharisees and all the woes, and now he turns his attention to his disciples who will be the apostles of the church, and he says, beware. That word leaven there is the idea of yeast. If you know anything about yeast, which the people at Jesus' time did because they made their own bread, they didn't go to the stores and buy it, but yeast is something that's so small and yet put into the, to the, to the dough would eventually allow the dough to rise. It worked almost slowly, secretly in some ways, silently. It was crafty in a sense. It was relentless. That's what the work of this yeast was. And Jesus is comparing this yeast to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Hypocrisy, it's saying one thing and doing the other. Hypocrisy depends on keeping some things concealed. It's the idea of play actors, of religion. That's where the word hypocrisy comes from. It's the idea of actors who are playing a part. And here the Pharisees were playing religion. They pretended to be something they weren't. And this was the yeast that was baked into the dough of their lives. Friends, the truth is, if we're honest, we're all hypocrites. If we're honest, we battle hypocrisy. 
And so it makes sense that Jesus is warning his disciples, his future apostles, surely he should warn us today. Warn us of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That it can be in us and we can be blind to it. But it's secretly working and and building and taking over. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. This could be problematic for the one who's living a fake life. The idea that that what you think is covered up and masked, or as as Mike so clearly put it, covered with a blanket as a three-year-old playing hide-and-seek, it will be uncovered. It will be revealed. It will be shown. In verse 3, he goes on to say, whatever is in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever is whispered in private shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Again, this is something the Pharisees did not understand. They thought their play acting was fooling everyone. But the problem was they didn't love God. Their hearts were far from God. And this is the warning that Jesus gives not to the Pharisees, not to the massive crowds, but to his disciples. This is the warning we need ourselves. How easily our hearts are far from God. Because we love other things rather than God. And yet, clearly what Jesus is depicting is that everything will be revealed. There's a day of judgment that is coming. The Bible makes it very clear that the day of judgment is a real deal. No one escapes it. We all stand before God. We're either clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, or we stand naked on our own. What's clear here is Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that God is dealing with his people. God's dealing with you, and God is dealing with me. The Apostle Peter knew this well. If you remember his story, he is one who loved Jesus, bragged of his love of Jesus, and yet denied Jesus three times. Peter talked about this in his own epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, for it, is a, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. For judgment there and the idea with household of God is the idea of chastisement. As a good father, he's not going to let us get away with our sin. It will be revealed, and it will be revealed most likely in this life. Because he's a good father. He won't let us to continue to live in hypocrisy. Peter knew this firsthand as his own sin of hypocrisy was known. But Peter continues in verse 17, and he says, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If we get chastised, what do those who are not the children of God, what do they receive? Judgment. For the non-believer, judgment comes. Friends, I would ask you, what is Jesus saying in this text to you? He's saying, be warned. 
The yeast of hypocrisy is in you. Be putting it to death. Don't let it stir secretly, growing and festering. Cut it out. Remove it. Confess it. Run from it. That is what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and that is what he's saying to us. He's calling us to examine our own hearts, reminding us that we all will one day be exposed. Better to deal with it now than later. Jesus begins to call us to correct our fears. In verse 4, he explains that we fear the wrong thing. We fear physical death. Maybe that's why we're hypocrites. Because we're trying to get along in the world with as least amount of friction as possible. But Jesus makes it clear that we're not to fear physical death. He says, do not fear him who can kill the body. And remember, in chapter 11, he explained that they already killed the prophets. Abel was killed. The people of God have been handed death at the hands of wicked people, both religious and non-religious. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples here is to be prepared for the hard times that will come because he's about to leave. He's about to die. But don't fear death. Jesus is preparing them equally for the great persecution of the first and second century. Emperors like Nero, who would torture Christians for their faith just for fun. Literally filleting human beings alive like you would a fish. Torturing them by throwing them to animals for a spectacle or a game. Jesus is preparing his disciples, saying, don't fear death. Yet the truth of most of us today, we're just even afraid to talk to our friends and family and coworkers about the gospel, let alone an angry mob about the gospel. We're so afraid of physical pain or affliction or emotional pain that we conceal our faith. The truth is, we care a great deal about our bodies. And in many ways, rightly so, we should care for them as they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's only natural to care for the body, but we must remember who truly is caring for us. And that's exactly where Jesus jumps in verses 6 and 7. Jesus talks about looking at the sparrow. Sold five for two cents, and yet they're not forgotten by God. He goes on to say, fear not, for you are more valuable than a sparrow in verse 7. I like what he does at the beginning of verse 7 when he says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now for some of you, that's way more hair than I have. My children remind me that regularly. And sometimes I want to pray against them when they do such a thing. But what is told here is not just that simply God knows the sum total of everyone's hair, but that God knows the exact number of that exact hair. 
Friends, I want you to think about that for a moment. God knows you so intimately, and he cares about you so deeply that he knows the exact number of a particular hair on your head. He cares for you, and therefore you have nothing to fear. Look to the sparrow. Martin Luther, the reformer, once said, a sparrow can become a great preacher. And surely in this text, that's exactly true. If God cares for the sparrow, how much more does he care for you? Yet Jesus, as he continues to talk about a right-oriented view of fear, he talks about rather than fearing physical death, what we should really fear is spiritual death. In verse 5, he says, fear the one who has authority to cast you into hell. What Jesus is doing here is he's pointing between the life we now live and the life that is yet to come, the eternal life that Scripture talks about. He uses the word hell, which literally means Gehenna, which is the idea of eternal punishment. It comes really from the idea of the valley of Hinnom. In the New Testament, there was this valley where there was always a fire burning because it was the place of trash. They would take their trash and literally dump it into the valley of Hinnom. And any time they walked by there, there was such a rotten stench and such a glow and heat of the flames that they were reminded of the future hell that awaits. And Jesus here is using that idea to say, Pointing clearly to the future which comes, he says, fear not a physical death, but spiritual death. The one who has the authority to cast you into Gehenna. Been a pastor for a number of years now, served in church ministry for well over 25 years. And let me tell you, I'm always astounded by people who assume that the one who has authority to cast into hell is Satan. It is not. The one who has authority to cast into hell is God and God alone. The warning that Jesus gives is to fear God. Fear God. It is God who is judge, and it is God, therefore, who should be feared. The fear of God is a necessary ingredient in living right. When you fear the right thing, it encourages you to do the right thing. Many of you may say, but pastor, isn't there somewhere in that old, in the New Testament the talk of the fact that perfect love casts out fear? Isn't that what makes the New Testament so different than the old? Friends, I would draw your attention to 1 John 4.18 where it says perfect love casts out fear. The word perfect is the idea of the perfect love which is yet coming. And that's why fear is a good thing now to teach us reverence and respect for God, to remind us of his authority and power. We're in process of perfectly loving God, and until then, we need to fear him. But as we begin to really grow in our relationship with God, we understand the grace and the mercy and the love of God, and therefore, we don't want to disappoint him. But before we get to that intimacy with God, Clearly, fear, reverence, respect for God 
is a good thing. Yet fearing God is not popular these days. It's not. When one preaches a sermon like that I'm preaching now, many would say, how puritanical, how Old Testament, how rude. Who wants to hear about an angry God? Friends, the problem is our culture is busy looking for a God that will worship them rather than worshiping the living and true God. The problem is that we would rather have God worship us than for us to worship him. I would not be a good shepherd. I would not be a good pastor to stand around and say, God is just happy with you being you. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible calls people to repentance. The Bible calls people to obedience. And that's why Jesus came. To be perfect for us. Jesus came to live a sinless life so he could be our righteousness. Jesus went to the cross and died to pay for our sin. He did that because of the great amount of love, but also because of the great amount of justice that was required. What Jesus is really saying in this text is to consider the welfare of your soul. Judgment comes. Where do you stand? In the 1500s, there was a man by the name of John Hooper. John Hooper was a preacher of the gospel. Yet because he wasn't teaching what the mainstream religion at the time was teaching, because he was battling for reformation, he was placed in prison. He was encouraged by some who loved him to recant of his faith. Hear the words of John Hooper. Life is sweet, and yes, friend, death is bitter. But eternal life is more sweet, and eternal death even more bitter. John Hooper was considering the welfare of his soul as he sat in prison. To recant of a faith that taught that salvation was solely of Christ, he viewed as being eternal, painful through judgment. See, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want you to really take stock of the welfare of your soul. I want you to understand what good fear really looks like. I want you to understand that fear rightly expressed will always truly acknowledge Christ. For Christ is the Savior of men. Christ has applied the finished work of salvation for us. Look at verse 8. Jesus, as he's preaching to his disciples and, and teaching them the right way of fear, he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, shall will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Friends, as you look at verse 8, it should bring you great joy. 
that Jesus would identify you as being on his team. The idea that we can be acknowledged by the Son because of our acknowledgement and dependence and love for him. What an encouragement it makes to know that the Son of Man will acknowledge us before the throne of God. That's what Luke says when it says before the angels of God. Or what Matthew means when Matthew says before the Father who's in heaven. That Jesus would acknowledge us because we acknowledge him. That's what Hooper was doing in that prison, acknowledging his absolute dependence on Jesus. And he wouldn't recant. He believed what Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved because of Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Hooper acknowledged him, believing that Jesus would acknowledge him. R.C. Sproul tells or offers a great picture where he says, imagine if you would, the divine tribunal where every secret sin is made manifest. And you're called to stand before the judgment seat and God makes public every sin you've ever committed. But just in that moment you say, I've embraced Jesus. And at that very same moment, Christ steps forward as your advocate and confesses before the throne of God and in the presence of the angels that you belong to him. Imagine that moment, that threat of divine judgment is absolutely removed and you receive divine redemption. What a beautiful picture of the acknowledgement we get in heaven for our dependence upon Jesus. And yet there's another side. Imagine that Jesus warns us that those who refuse to confess him, he will refuse to acknowledge. That's after all what he says in verse 9. The one who denies the Son of Man will be denied. Imagine that same tribunal. Imagine all of your same sins acknowledged one by one. And there, rather than being able to plead Christ, you have to plead your own self-righteousness, to which Christ remains silent. And when asked, he says, I don't know him. Friends, anyone who denies Christ will face the ultimate denial, being denied by Jesus. Friends, one of the things I hope you see in this text is that everything is focused on Jesus. What you do with Jesus matters. There is good news that's found in Jesus. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son will be forgiven. What? Is there a typo? Did Luke mess up? No. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we have denied Christ in private and in public in the ways in which we choose and pick the things that we will do and not do that the Bible commands. The way in which we honor him with our lips and our heart. If we're honest, we have denied Christ. And yet that is the very reason Christ came. To die for sinners. 
for those who would confess and admit and acknowledge their need of him. The good news is that there is forgiveness. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's the greatest news of all for me. The book of James calls the book, the Bible, a mirror. And when you spend time in it, you begin to see yourself as you really are. You begin to see how you don't measure up, how your own self-righteousness won't ever accumulate enough good deeds. Maybe because it is a mirror, many of us don't want to read it. We'd rather not discuss it. We'd rather put it out of mind, and therefore we become more consumed with our physical well-being than our spiritual well-being. But Jesus tells us all this because there is hope. There is hope for the sinner, for the lost, for the broken. And yet then, at the end of verse 10, we're reminded that there is judgment. He goes on to say, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Theologians have wrestled with this. Different churches have drawn party lines of what this text means. But Luke chapter 11 gives us a little insight where we saw the Pharisees who saw the works of Jesus and yet, rather than giving credit to God, they chose rather to give credit to Satan. They robbed God of his credit, of his glory, and gave it to the fallen one. They were willing to ignore the truth for a lie. And by doing so, according to 1 John, they committed a sin which leads to death. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin in the Bible. People say, well then, there's forgiveness in Jesus, but not in the Holy Spirit? I, I, thought, I thought the three were one God. What's going on here? And what, what is this saying? Friends, I would remind you that the focus of the text is Jesus. And the work of the Spirit is to magnify Jesus. To magnify Jesus in our own hearts by showing us our sin. That's the work of the Spirit. By driving us to the beauty and the glory of Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. By convicting us of our sins. That's the work of the Spirit. That's why theologians say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is really the final and ultimate rejection of Christ because Christ is the focus. Those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit live in a continual unwillingness to confess their sin. They reject the truth of the Spirit that he makes known of Christ. Some may say, well, Aaron, what about those who on the deathbed make a confession? They, they profess to believe and repent. Is it too late? We would say, for the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all our blasphemy, all of our rejection, if their belief and repentance is genuine. Friend, do you see this? this is what, why this is so important? What we do with Christ matters because the Spirit 
magnifies Christ to us. This is a calling to examine our own hearts, our own spiritual well-being, asking the question, do I truly believe? Am I denying Christ in any way? If so, have I repented? Am I clinging to the forgiveness that Christ and Christ alone can provide? That's the point Jesus is making. And that's why Jesus ends in verses 11 and 12 in his message to his disciples with the idea that ultimately fear will be replaced by trust. Notice what he says in verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, talking about the persecution that's yet to come, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Notice what he says. He says, because that same Holy Spirit who testifies to about me will teach you what you ought to say in the very hour you need to say it. That's the gift that the Spirit brings. The Spirit brings comfort. The Spirit brings truth. The Spirit brings confidence in the face of Jewish rulers, in the face of Gentile authorities, all of which would put Jesus to death. The Holy Spirit will teach you. He's your helper. He's your guide. And he will give you the very words you ought to say. There's a story that Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of a girl who belonged to a religious group called Covenanters. The Covenanters were the faithful church in Scotland. And during the 1600s, they were persecuted for their faith. They believed that they were standing upon the word of God and the absolute trust and confidence that it's in Christ alone by which we're saved. This girl was a Covenanter. And she was on her way one day walking through the streets to an illegal worship gathering of covenanters. And as she was walking through the streets of Scotland, she came face to face with the soldiers who were looking to arrest covenanters such as herself. And they asked her, where are you going? I want you to listen to her reply as the Holy Spirit gave her exactly the right words to which she could testify about Christ and yet be protected. Throwing up a quick prayer, she said, my elder brother has died, and they're going to read his will this afternoon, and they're going to tell us all that he has done, and I hear that he has left something for me, and so therefore I want to hear the will read. As I read these words, it gives me chills to think about God's blessed protection of this girl. She didn't lie. She actually bore witness. And the Holy Spirit guided her and protected her. Friends, the Holy Spirit will guide and protect you as well. Have faith and not fear. That's what we have been called to do. To have faith over fear. We're told that Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms, which sounds kind of gross, especially when we're talking about fear factor. 
but as he's standing before this tribunal who are questioning him, getting him to recant of the things he had written as he was making clear his absolute trust in, in Christ alone as his Savior. Luther said these words, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. As he said those words, he did not know whether he would live or die. But one thing he was absolutely convinced of, his eternal destiny. Because he took account of his soul. And so do we. For the yeast and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees dwells within all of us. It's sneaky. It's festering and growing. And it needs to be put to death. And the way we put it to death is through repentance. Confessing. Admitting our sins and our absolute need of Jesus. Church, fear the Lord with reverence. Run to him knowing that all that he promises is true. For he is a good father who loves his children. And the view of this is his giving of his own son for sinners such as us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away, Lord, from this text, this conviction of being transparent, no longer playing the role of religious play actors, may we truly examine our hearts to see where the yeast of hypocrisy resides. And Lord, may we cast it out through confession and repentance. May we look to Jesus as our guide and hope, trusting in his finished work alone. Lord, may we acknowledge Christ above all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.